Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to continue our series in Ephesians. And uh, I too just want to, uh, just as one of the pastors here, love to uh, just thank all of you for helping out yesterday at the Fall Fest if you were here or participated. Um, thank you for uh, filling my children with tons and tons of sugar and the repercussions of that. Um, but it was a great fun and great joy. It was great to see all of our, our neighbors coming out and enjoying. Uh, and what a beautiful day, right? Um, I don't know what it is about like sunshine, like too much of it. Like I just want to take a nap. I don't know why that's the, the, the response, but it was, it was an amazing day. So thank you for everyone that, that served. And so we're going to continue in our, our series in Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like to read that. Um, we're in the second half of Ephesians uh, chapter 2. We'll finish up chapter 2 today. And uh, we're going to be taking this series all the way through Christmas. And so hopefully you get a chance to maybe even your own time with the Lord or uh, with your family. Uh, read through Ephesians. It's a, it's a great book. It's an easy book uh, to read, especially if maybe you're not familiar with the scriptures. Uh, it's a great place to, to land and, and, and kind of dive in. Uh, so, so let's get comfortable with Ephesians for the next few, few months together. Um, so Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, I'll read through the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from the Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So when you are no longer strangers and so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. For God, by the Spirit. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we, we come to you and we, we sit before this massive portrait picture of the church and how you redeem us not only to yourself, but you also redeem us into a family. And Lord, if we really take time to think about what is going on here, that we would say the only hope of any kind of unity in our world would be through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you are the only one who can take people from every background and every tribe and every nation and every ethnicity and every socioeconomic standing and you can bring them together under the banner of Christ. That the things that so define us take second, third, fourth place, but what ultimately defines us is our identity in Christ Jesus. So I pray now as we open your word, God, that you will teach us by your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to hear and receive from you what you have to say to us. And then help us not just be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves, but be doers as well. So help us now. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as we've been walking through Ephesians, it's, it's been a, just a, a beautiful uh, kind of mosaic, if you will, of, of what salvation and redemption is. And, and Paul begins his letter in chapter 1 with this, this, uh, this song of praise, Blessed be uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And, and most commentators believe that he's, he's just gushing over the page of, of saying, look what God has done in Christ for us. Look at all these blessings. Look how he's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's He's given us new life in him. And then he shifts into a prayer and he, he begins to pray for the church that they would understand how deep this goes and how profound this is and how, how much it changes uh, their lives. And then last week we looked at just God's grace as, as towards us in, as individuals, that God has saved us even though we were dead in our trespass, even though we we're spiritually separated from God, no pulse for God, no love for God. Uh, he made us alive in Christ and it's by grace and it's through faith. It's just this beautiful mosaic and picture of who we are as God's people, what God has, has done uh, for us. But what's interesting as we kind of move through chapter two is that he's kind of moving from the individual identity and us before God, and now he's making it more horizontal and collective. That he, that he wants to show us this relationship, not only of our redemption in Christ individually, personally, but now what does that mean for us together as the church family? How does he redeem us into a family? Because really the scriptures, and, and I think what we're, we're going up against is a very individualistic Western society. And so this idea of family, generations, we, us, is very foreign to us. Uh, living, you know, the air we breathe in America is very me. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need anyone else. I'm a self-made man, right? I'm a self-made woman. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do God how I want. I'll do church how I want, right? And, and, And so this idea of a collective, like, community of faith and church is very foreign to us. And it's not just really the air we breathe. But I want to submit to you that I know we we think we have a lot of problems in the church uh, today, and we do. But, but when we really look at Ephesians and we look at the first century culture of this idea of Jews coming to faith and Gentiles coming to faith and God bringing together, they had all kinds of, of problems. That the relationship between Gentiles and Jewish people was toxic, uh, to put it mildly. So maybe to, maybe to paint a picture as we kind of jump into Ephesians is, is imagine from the beginning of time there's this family and, and God has shown his affection for this one family. That he says, you're my people. I, I love you. I've chosen you. I'm going to care for you. I've given you promises, right? You're going to be my people. Just believe me, trust me, follow my, my commands, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and, and I'm going to lead you into the promised land. And then, and then imagine all of a sudden uh, the, these other kids start coming into the family, <laughs> And they don't know about these promises. They don't know about the love of the Father. They don't know about all of the promises that God has made uh, to, to his people. And they're just kind of like graffitiing all over the wall. And they're, you know, they're not listening to the Father. They're, they're just doing whatever they want. And I know for some of us, maybe we, we, we were born into adopted families. And, and maybe you already had biological children. And so you can know the tension of, of someone who's a, the biological kid. And now the adopted kid comes in. And it's like, hey, they get all the privileges and they get all the rights just like we do. We've been with the family the whole time. What's the deal with this? So now imagine in the first century you have Jewish people who, ha- who know these promises of God for thousands of years. And now you have these Gentile non Jewish people that don't know the scriptures at all, don't know these promises, and they come into the family. Can you imagine the toxic, toxicity of that, right? They're looking at each other, and the Jews are going, what? are you kidding me? Like, who are these people? 
I thought we were the, the chosen people. I thought we were the, the ones that were in, in the family. Now these, these dirty, they would even call, you know, Jews would call Gentiles in that time pagan people. They were just, they were just kindling for hell. They worship these false gods. They don't know Yahweh like we do. They don't know the scriptures like we do. And so I think it would be naive for us this morning as we look at Ephesians 2 to think that somehow today we have a lot of problems, but back in the day that wasn't as bad. And I would say the Jewish and Gentile relationship was just as bad as anything that we've ever, ever seen. So the question becomes, how do we live as God's family? How, how do we live with our, our varied backgrounds and, and, and cultures and ethnicities? Like, what does that look like? And that's really the, the, the picture that Paul is trying to paint in Ephesians uh, 2, to 11. So, so how, does that, how does that work itself out? How does it live out together as God's, God's people? And so I want to look at just a couple things today, and and this is actually a very practical message because I think Paul's writing of this is very practical for us. And so first, I I want us to remember our alienation, separation, and hope without God. That's where it all begins. Secondly, I want us to remember the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, I want us to remember our new identity as a new humanity. And I'll, I'll walk us through what all that means. So first, I want us to remember our alienation, separation, and hope without God. That's a, a big loaded thing. That just sounds like, well, that's kind of, sounds like a, a downer. Um, but, but notice the way that the text begins in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Here's the word again, 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where I get this, remember our alienation, separation, and hope without God. So, so Paul, as he's walking through Ephesians, he, he gets to this therefore. And whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, you go, what is it there for? What's it pointing to? Right? It's, it's, it's therefore, all the things he pointed to before in chapter, uh, beginning of chapter two and chapter one is, is remember your redemption. Remember you were dead in your trespass. Remember you were spiritually dead, but, but Christ has redeemed you, made you alive in Christ. Now you are, have, have come together. He's brought you into the family. Remember all those things. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision were separated from God. Remember that you were hopeless. You didn't know the promises of God. You were strangers. You were aliens. You had no, no hope. Remember these things. Now, in the first century, the world was really divided into two groups of people, especially for Jews and Gentiles. So the why, why Paul's using this language of circumcision and uncircumcision is basically if you're circumcised and you were a male, you were part of the Jewish family. So in the Old Testament, they would circumcise uh, children at, at, after eight days. They would circumcise them, mark them off, and sometimes later, even as grown men, which would have been horrific. But, you, you know, you can imagine it was to mark them off as God's people, to say you belong to God even be- before you believe. It's actually where we get baptism. That's why we, we baptize not only adults who profess faith, but also kids, because how could these kids even believe yet? But God was marking them off and saying, these are my people. Uh, th- these are, are, are the sign and the seal that they belong to me, the circumcision. But everyone else in humanity was the uncircumcision. They didn't have those promises. They weren't marked off by God. These were the Gentiles, right? So all these Gentiles are, are coming into the, into the church. They're coming to faith in Jesus. And so imagine a Jewish person who saw a Gentile person. That was not a, a term of endearment. Oh, you uncircumcised Gentiles. It was you dirty pagans who don't believe what we do. You're not the chosen ones who worship your pagan gods and your statues and your shrines. 
And in, in, in Ephesians, you know, the, the Diana and Artemis, the, these, these pagan deities that they would bow down to. You're not like us. And so it was, it was really a, a slam against who they were. Now, I want to say one thing about that because it seems like, well, geez, I mean, if, if the Jews are, are God's chosen people, why are they not loving, even as Andy said, why are they not loving their enemies? That doesn't seem very, you know, Yahweh-like or Christian-like in our context. But see, when Jesus comes on the scene, the whole religious system and political system is all a mess. That this was never God. God's plan was always to bring in the Gentiles. It's almost like God saying, hey, hey, read your scriptures a little closer because Psalms talks about all the times that all the nations are going to come in. And, and that even early on, when, when God was setting apart his own people, there were all kinds of Gentiles coming in, it was sojourners and aliens, and saying, hey, don't forget about the people outside your gates. Bring them in too because you belong to God. Show them the same grace that's been extended to you. So that's always been God's plan. But we're the ones who messed it up. We're the ones that say they're not welcome. They're not the chosen one. Why do they get to come in? So this is an indictment on God's people at this time, not not on God. His promises were always for a a mission that would include all tribes, all tongues, all nations. But the Israelite people were going to be the catalyst that through this line that all the Gentiles would come in. So that that Paul would even say that anyone who believes uh, in Jesus is also part of Abraham's seed that those promises that were made to Israel now are our promises. And I can talk very confidently this morning because we're all Gentiles, right? <laughs> we don't have Jewish background. We're not Jews coming into faith. Most of, I mean, majority of us, unless I'm missing some of you, we're all Gentiles. We're, this is our story, that we weren't part of that original descendant, that original family, but God has graciously brought us in. And so this, this idea of circumcision and uncircumcision would have been equivalent to a racial slur. Like, oh, you dirty people, stay over there. But Paul does something very subversive here, if you, if, you, if you catch it. He says, The uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Don't miss that. Paul's doing something almost humorous. As he's saying, hey, Jewish folks, when you circumcise someone, and obviously you have to do it with your hands, right? I, I don't want to get into how that works. Um, I think it's a lot. <laughs> yes. I have three boys, and they've all been, you know, um, and it's maybe a little, probably a little different in modern medicine. But it's done with your hands. But what Paul's doing here is he's also saying, hey, uh, be careful here, Jews. Just because you've been circumcised doesn't mean you're necessarily in the family if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in Yahweh. That it's not just this right that is, that is just done by hands and somehow you're in. Because he also says this idea of hands, he also talks about uh, th- th- why it's subversive is because Gentiles would also build shrines and gods with their own hands and worship and bow down to these gods. So what he's doing is he's kind of taking both groups and saying, hey, 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 don't, don't think any of you are off the hook here. We all come in through the same way. I, I love the way when Paul's preaching at, uh, uh, in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he says it this way in verse uh, 20, where we at? 22. So Paul's preaching to, to, to these Gentiles, and he says in verse 22, 17, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of you. And so, so Paul's making very clear to the Gentile people of that day early on, is he's saying, hey, God is not hemmed in by temples or, or things made by him. We don't need to make an image of God out, made out of our own hands. That God gives life and breath to everything. I mean, that's why we don't have to go find some temple uh, to bow down and, and, and do religious rites. He says, you don't need to do that because I've made everything. I'm creator and I'm redeemer of all things. So, so whether you have the mark of circumcision or whether you don't, what's made by hands is, really means nothing to me because I've given life to everyone. And I've redeemed you in Christ Jesus and it has nothing to do with what is made or what is done by man. So, the call to remember is to remember that you are separated from God. You are separated from His promises. I think this, this word, again, is, has such powerful alienation and separation. I mean, we talk about that in our culture all the time, people being alienated from each other. Not welcome in the group, right? They're, they're kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of shoved to the side. It'd be these, the same idea as if you imagine you, yourself as a as an immigrant or a foreigner outside who who didn't have citizenship, and so you kind of stand in the window of a house and you peer in the window, and they slam the window in your face and say, "You, you can't come in here. You're not welcome." And so that's how. Gentiles felt when they were coming into the faith. And it seems like Paul is addressing this because there's probably some issues. Because imagine, again, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians coming together and they got all these, this background. How, how, do we, how do we come together? Well, we remember our own alienation and our separation and our hope without God. Did you catch that in verse 12? They were strangers to the commonwealth, um, which is another way of saying the citizens, citizenship of Israel, and strangers to covenants of promises all the promises that God made to Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. And actually this word in the Greek means, it's where we get the word atheist. No hope without God. It's, it's this, this idea that they didn't have a God, right? They had a lot of different gods, but it was, they had no hope. They were just walking around. There is no God. There's no reason for living. But yet God brought them in together to be one people. That he opened the window, he opened the door, he says, there's no more alienation, there's no more separation in me. You come and become my family by what I have done for you. So, so how does a church love people in this way that have all kinds of different backgrounds? Now again, our conversation in 2018, it really isn't Jews coming into faith, or Gentiles, we're all Gentiles coming to faith. But I think our conversation today has to be about, well, what differing political, ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic backgrounds, differing views on education, theological differences. How do we love each other in the church with all these secondary backgrounds? Well, we do it by remembering our alienation, our separation, and our hope without God. Because we all come in the same way. You didn't come in because of your political views or your background, your ethnicity, what family you you grew up in. The Apostle John makes that very clear. It's not by the will of man that you became a Christian. It's not by your family of origin that you became a Christian. It's not what side of the tracks you lived on or what era you lived in or, or, or what time in history that you lived in or if you lived in a certain country or, or whatever. But, but the way we begin to love each other, the baseline place is to remember our own alienation, our own separation, our own uh, time when we had no hope without God, that we were peering in, we were looking in, and we weren't welcomed in because we were still living in sin and, and not trusting in Jesus and not walking with him. 
and we weren't welcomed into the family of God. And if we remember that it's all by grace that we come in, and it's all by God's mercy and all by God's kindness, well, guess what? I can extend that same grace and mercy and kindness and go, hey, come in. I was a screw-up too. Come on in. Welcome. You'll find it really comfortable here because we're all just kind of making a mess of things. But it's only by the grace of Jesus that anyone even gets to be part of the family. Hey, I remember what it was like to be alienated and separated and and live my life without hope. I I know what that's like. So, so come on, come on in. And remember that our unity is not based in these secondary things. Our, our ethnicity, our, our socioeconomic standing, right? When you become a Christian, I, I remember years ago, someone kind of laid this out for me. I thought it was really helpful. So um, I'm, a, I'm Italian. Um, I don't know what that means. If that means anything to you, it doesn't, probably. It just means I like spaghetti, meatballs, and might have a little anger in me. Um, I blame my, my folks. But, um, but when I became a Christian, my, my ultimate identity is no longer Italian. Um, when I became a Christian, my ultimate identity is, is not American. It's citizen of heaven. It's in Christ. And so all these other secondary identities, not that they don't matter, not that, that you know, God brought me into this family. God allowed me to be born in 1979 in, in America. Like, I, I love America. Um, but those aren't my core identities anymore. I'm a citizen of the king. I'm a citizen of heaven. And so my priorities change. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. So my, my values should change. Now, again, not, not that we don't minimize things, not that we don't celebrate those, those things in church as we gather together as God's family and you talk about your story and we, I talk about my story and, and, and where we grew up and, and all those things that shaped us because those are real things and we're not going to minimize those at all. But the thing that binds us together and the things that unites us together is ultimately Christ Jesus. And everything else flows secondarily through that. Even theological upbringing or tradition, those all become secondary to walking, knowing with Christ. That's why I can hop on a plane and you can hop on a plane and you can go anywhere in the world and meet other Christians and go, you too? Yeah. It's all about Jesus, isn't it? Yep. They might worship different. They might like look differently. We may not understand each other's language that well. But the thing that unites us is Jesus Christ. So we need to remember our alienation, our separation, our hope without God, which flows nicely into the second idea here is remember the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, the, the, the one who's making all of this possible for Jews and Gentiles in the first century and for us today from all different backgrounds. Because notice how this is very similar to what, what Paul does in, in chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and made us alive together with Christ. So, so Paul, if you remember last week, he goes into all of that. We were dead. We were dead in our sins. We, we were rebels against God. We were failures before God. But in God, he made us alive in Christ. But notice what, what Paul does in verse 13. It's almost the same idea, but in a collective sense. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I said verse 4 was one of the best, most important, beautiful passages in all of Scripture. 13 is very close. But that's who you used to be. You used to be far off. You used to not be part of the family. You used to not know of any of the promises. You didn't know the Scriptures. You didn't know who God was. You didn't know about this, this love and this, this grace and this mercy that God had extended to His people. You were separated. You were alienated. But God, now in Christ Jesus, who once you were far off, had been brought near by the blood of Christ. It was by His atoning death on a cross. 
that you can say that you're part of the family of God. That it's what Jesus has done. He's the main player here. He's the main actor here. That he has brought us peace with God. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the peace of God only comes when we're justified by faith, by trusting in this atoning work of Jesus, what he has done for us. It's by banking our lives, relying on him, not us, not our goodness, not our will, not our morality, not our background, not what what denomination we're part of, what tradition we're part of. We're not banking our lives on them. It's like, man, well, they're obviously not Baptists. They must not be welcome here. Or they, they're Catholics or they're Church of Christ. I was talking to a, a friend about the, the Church of Christ. You know, they believe they're the only true church. But for us, it's who's in Christ? Who's trusting and relying on the one who did everything we couldn't do for ourselves? And, and Paul, he piles on in, this, in these verses, showing that Jesus is the main actor. We see that in verse 13. We also see that in 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh. He's by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He might create in himself one new man. Verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In him, through him, who's the main actor here? Jesus Christ, by his blood, his reconciling work to bring us into right relationship with God, with each other. That we couldn't do this on our own. That's what's, I, I talked last week about your salvation being such a miracle that we're all just trophies of God's grace. You know what's another secondary miracle? Is the church. I know it's got issues because you're here and I'm here. Look at history, yes, we've done horrific things. But it is an absolute miracle that God could take from every background, every tribe, and every nation and bring them together as a family. Do you know, nine years ago, none of us even knew each other, other than maybe your spouse. I mean, you probably knew them, but nine years ago, I didn't know any of you. Think about that. You have no reason to be here. Like, like, it's not because we like the same music or we like mediocre football and baseball and living in Kansas City. I mean, the football's pretty good this year. I will go on, sorry, I don't mean to offend anyone. Got your jerseys on. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is going to save the city, apparently. But that's not what unites us. It's not our affection for good barbecue. Amen to that. I mean, that's a that's second, maybe secondary, third, third dairy. Is that a word? But it's an absolute miracle that we could come from every tribe and every background and ethnicity and and ways we grew up, homeschooled, not homeschooled, whatever, what side of the track, suburbs, urban, inner city, poverty, it doesn't matter that what brings us together is an absolute stinking miracle and we don't think about it enough. We just take it for granted. Like this just happened, right? It's just an institution. It's just this thing we do on Sundays because we have nothing better to do. It is an absolute miracle that we're not hurting and killing each other every single day. And I imagine when Jews and Gentiles came together, those thoughts went through their heads quite often. 
How are we going to live with these people? That a huge switch had to happen. Where they began to realize, they had to remember the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, that he's the one that has brought us together. Now, how does Jesus actually do that? How does he bring people that were far off, that didn't know him, that were outside the family? How does he actually do that by his blood? Well, he, Paul gives a couple, actually three things I think are really important here that we can understand how, how, we, how we come together as God's family. Notice what he said in verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So abolishing laws, the laws of, and commandments. So, so Paul's commenting on, on the ceremonial law. So even if you go back to, you know, the, these Jews are, are, are circumcised, right? This is a, a ceremonial law that was in, in the Old Testament. It was important. Of course it was. And the different laws, you know, you used to bring animals to the altar and you'd sacrifice them to atone for sins. All part of the ceremonial law, important things. There's also moral laws, of course, the Ten Commandments. And it's not that we've gotten rid of those things. But these were all pointers. These were all foretastes of what was coming, the Messiah who was going to fulfill all those laws, that there's no ceremonial law anymore. We don't need to bring, you know, Betsy the cow in here and slaughter her. Thank you. So glad for that. A lot more preparation for a pastor in the morning. And you guys didn't have to come from home and bring your livestock and sacrifice them on the altar because the once and all sacrifice was found in Jesus Christ, the, the one perfect spotless lamb. We don't have to bring a lamb anymore. So those were all fulfilled. And the moral law was also fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So you got Jews who know the law backwards and forward and the ceremonial laws, all those things fulfilled in Christ. You also got Gentiles who don't know anything about the law, don't know anything about these rituals fulfilled in Christ. Why? Because none of us can keep the law. That's why Jesus had to come, <laughs> right? So, so, so where our commonality comes is we all say, we all need Jesus. If you were the religious one that knew all the promises, knew all the rituals, all the things, well, guess what? You can't pull it off. No amount of ritual, no amount of good church going, no amount of bringing Betsy to the altar is going to do it. And, and guess what? We can't keep the commands of God, so we need a Savior to redeem us. We need His righteousness. We need His goodness to take our place. We need Him to die and shed our blood. Because if we could just all do it, why are we even here? I can just do it in my own strength. I'm, I'm a good person. Not if you're really honest with yourself. And if I'm honest with myself, we all need Jesus. And so one of the ways Paul unites the church and says why this thing is such a miracle and amazing is that our commonality is not laws and regulations and traditions. It's Christ Jesus who's fulfilled all those things. So it's all who are looking to him, all who are trusting in him, all who are relying on him. That's what unites us. But I know, because I know you, many of you, that your church background was far from that. It was Christ Jesus plus all these things. Do this, don't do that, don't talk to these kinds of people, don't vote this way, don't be like this, don't watch Disney, don't dance, don't, only King James, which is a horrible translation, by the way, sorry to offend half of you. I went to seminary, that helped. It's actually one of the poor translations, but we don't have time for that. But for some reason, that became the thing, right? This, this 19th century document, right? That they came down and, and says, nope, King James only. If you don't preach from that, you're going to hell. Like, really? Are you kidding me? That's the thing? Like, that's going to be our thing. 
So a watching world could come in and go, well, I don't have a King James, I have an NIV. Well, get out of here. Come to the light. Like, like no one's going to do that in their right mind, right? You can't wear, you know, shorts to church. You can't wear hats to church. You can't, you know, you can't be whatever it is. And so what's so amazing about this is because they all came to the table with all kinds of these ethnic, cultural traditions. And Paul says, gone, abolished in Christ, fulfilled in Christ. And that doesn't mean we don't care about the commandments. It doesn't mean we don't want to obey Christ. Of course, that's not what he's saying. But, but it's fulfilled in Christ. It's by trusting in him, following him. And then there's also this one new humanity out of the two that he is, is forming. Did you catch that in verse 15? He's abolishing these laws and commandments, but in verse, the second half he says um, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That God's plan of redemption was not just individual Christians, spiritual free agents, walking around me and Jesus doing my own thing. But God's redemptive plan was to bring individuals, yes, into the family of God together, often families of families, to be one new man, not two, one new society, not two, rallied around the work and person of Christ. So, so anyone who is loyal to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, those are our brothers and sisters. There's not many faiths, as Paul will say. There's not many baptisms, as Paul would say. There's not many ways into the family. It's all through faith in Christ. The God's plan from eternity was to make one new humanity. Isn't that interesting that when sin came into the world, the separation of Adam and Eve before God, before each other, and before creation, those are severed. But didn't you remember the Tower of Babel? When all the languages were confused and, and, and people were separated by you know, language and, and they're trying to build this big you know, monument or tower to heaven. Like a spider right there. Hopefully that didn't go in the communion juice. I think we're good. <laughs> Might be a little crunchy. But, but our sinful nature would say, I'm going to build this tower to God. And, and all the languages were separated. But isn't this interesting that at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, all the languages were beginning to be united again and a little foretaste of every tribe and tongue and nation that one day, and again, I don't understand how this happens, but somehow in heaven we're going to understand each other because it says every tribe and tongue and nation. I don't think everyone's speaking English. But before creation, there was chaos and disorder and the Spirit hovered over the waters to bring unity. And at Pentecost, he brings the church together, every tribe and tongue and nation, to be one. But the thing that unites us again is Christ Jesus. It's remembering the peacemaker who shed his blood to bring us so we could have peace with God, but also peace with each other. So the thing that gives you the motivation and the ability to love your neighbor and to love people in this church and any church that you're a part of is Jesus. It's remembering what he has done for you, that he has brought you in, that you were alienated, you were separated, you had no hope, but now he's brought us together to say, is he the thing that we're after? Is he the one that we're after? Is he the one we want to honor? Is he the one that, 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 that we want to make much of in our lives? So let's ask this question. Is there, is there any division over cultural, ethnic, or tradition in this church? Are there things that divide us? They really don't have to do with the gospel. And if so, we need to pray that the gospel would go deeper in our hearts and our lives and our souls. Because this is an implication of the gospel. The work of Jesus isn't just about reconciling man to God, it's also about reconciling us together as a church family. 
And guess what? There's no place on earth that is about this. Like, there's groups of people, there's communities that, you know, have a common task or cause. But the moment you, you have any difference about that, you're out, right? But, but, but God is saying this is a, a supernatural community. You couldn't make this up in your head, right? People don't naturally, by their own default, come together and, and hang out together and do their life together and, and encourage each other and build each other up and spend time together that have all these different backgrounds and all these different ways of doing life. That just doesn't happen. As much as that's our cultural air that we breathe, is this, can't we all just sing and, and hold hands and sing kumbaya and get along for the sake of humanity? No. Because we don't want to. Because we need God to change our hearts. And we need God to unite us to something bigger than just a cause or, 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 or a hobby, or right? It has to be something eternal and something weighty, and only God can do that. So last, just we need to remember our new identity as a new humanity. So we need to remember our alienation, our separation, our hope without God. We need to remember the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, and we need to remember our new identity as a new humanity. Notice how Paul ends this little section of Scripture with these, these images. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are a fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, him being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is the church? Well, these, these images say it's, it's a citizenship. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, all of God's people. You have a new identity. You have a new citizenship. And you're also members of the household of God, so we're a family of God. But he also says that we're, we're temples. Interesting language here. Verse 21, In whom the whole uh, structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're temples, but we're also the place where God dwells by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's Paul, Paul doing here? He's talking about, you know, we're, we're citizens, we have a new citizenship, we're, we're a family, and we're, we're temples, we're a place where God, God dwells. Well, the temple in the Old Testament was the, the centerpiece of Jerusalem. It was, it was not, not only a religious life, but it was also commerce and arts and music. It, it was the play, the centerpiece of the identity of God's people was the temple, the, the physical structure of the temple. Um, but it was also a place where Jews believed that when they gathered together to worship God, that heaven and earth would crash together. That even though it was an ordinary structure, even though it was everyday life, this is where God would meet his people. So heaven and earth, you can imagine that imagery of, of coming together. They believe that's where God met his people. But we don't have a temple anymore, do we? Paul's saying the people of God are now the temple of God. It's not about pillars. It's not about whatever this is made of, cement. There's some brick around the building, some drywall in other places, right? But that's not what matters. It's not a physical structure now. God's saying, wherever God's people, wherever people are loyal to Jesus, wherever people love Jesus, you are the temple of God. God comes and dwells with you. He dwells in you if you're believing in Christ, but he's also with you collectively as God's people. Now you're to go and live out of that new creation, that new identity as God's new people. It has nothing to do with this building. Praise God we have a building. 
We don't need a building. We'll be fine, right? Because it's not about a building. A building's just a convenience so we don't get rained on and we don't you know, melt in the summer. We have AC, right? It's a, it's a gathering place, right? But you can go anywhere in the world. We used to do missions in Mexico, right? They're, they're, they're gathering in just a cement block building or they're gathering under a tree on the beach. Still God's people. Yeah, but they don't have a swanky 1950s Baptist building like we do. So they're probably not doing it right. And they don't have projectors like we do, right? They're probably not doing it right. Right? And I'm being facetious, you know that. But, but right, it's you, they are the temple now. They, wherever they are, if they are believing in Jesus, they have been brought in, they have been grafted in, the peace has come to them by the blood of Jesus. Now they are one people, one humanity. If they are loyal to Jesus, God meets them right there because they are temples of the Holy Spirit. So, do we understand that? Do we know that as God's people? Wherever we are, whether we're gathered together on a Sunday, we're in city groups during the week, men's and women's group meeting together, families around the table, reading the scripture together, praying together, God is there dwelling with you. Work on Monday because you're a temple, a place where God dwells. So, so what's the, the significance of that? Well, well, I think the significance of that is that as we go out into the world, we need to remember, I think, I think a good place, I'm just going to end with 1 Peter. Um, I've mentioned this text quite a bit, but I think it's a good picture. I know it's not Paul, but forgive me. But Paul's understanding of the temple, this is very much temple language from Peter. If you see the consistency in Scripture, 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of this flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's temple language. We're all priests. We all have gifts that God has given us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So wherever you are, wherever, whether you're working, whether you're in your home, whether you're in your neighborhood, it doesn't matter. You need to remember that we still are the church. Proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And man, I, I used to have no mercy, no grace. no. I used to be outside like a, a soldier, like an immigrant looking in the window and nobody's letting me in. I was alienated and separated from God without hope in the world. But God, by his blood, by Jesus' blood, has brought me in and given me peace. And now I'm part of the family. I need to tell you about that. It's an absolute miracle. And I'm part of this ragtag, weird group called New City Church. You should come and, and hang out with us. Every walk of life, every background, somehow God has miraculous brought us together. So, so we go as these temples. That we're not dependent on a structure to really do church. Now, again, we, a little way Andy always talks about, you know, just like our building is just a tool. It's just a tool. Like it's not the whole picture. It's a way we can bless each other. It's a way we can bless our community, right? It's somewhere to gather so we don't melt in the Missouri sun. But it's just a tool, right? We have to remember that we are the temple. So when you go and you gather in your city groups this week, guess what? Heaven and earth are crashing together. They are. Just like the Jews in the Old Testament. Because God comes and meets his people, wherever his people are. Those who are loyal to Jesus, those who love Jesus, guess what? God comes and meets you. When the ladies during the week open up the scriptures together and they gather together for fellowship, or the men 
in the mornings or a family opens the scriptures and prays with their kids, guess what? Heaven and earth crash together in those moments because you're a temple. And so we live out of those identities. We, we live out of this new identity as a new humanity in Christ Jesus. One of the, I think, forgotten pieces of the Lord's Supper, and I'm so thankful that we can take it every week because there's so many facets to it, but, but one of the things that the Lord's Supper does is actually is a, a way to unite us as God's people. Because the thing that, 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 as we've talked about for 40 minutes, is the thing that unites us as, as God's people is not our backgrounds, our identities, or what music we like, but it's Christ Jesus. So whenever we take the supper, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us, that he shed his blood, represented by the cup. He broke his body, represented by the, 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 the bread. Why? So we could be reconciled to God, yes and amen, but also so that we could be reconciled to each other as God's family. That it works both ways. It's not just one or the other. That we aren't just spiritual free agents, that I belong to a family and I have brothers and sisters, that I'm accountable to that I need to make sure that they're, they're living as they should, and you need to make sure I'm living as I should. We need to encourage each other and call each other out when it's not going the way it should, and, and when we're hurting and we're broken and we're suffering, that we pray for each other and we help each other, right? We take care of our needs because we're a new family together. And it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. And if you're not a believer in Christ, Jesus would invite you to be part of his family. But I think every human without Christ does feel a sense of alienation and separation just on an everyday level. We always feel like we're just not quite there. It's like, you know, the job just doesn't seem to do it. You know, these friends or, or this community or, or this cause, it, they always just seem to kind of be, be lacking. Because I think it's, we live this constant sense of there's more, but I'm not sure what that more is. And I believe it's all found in the gospel that brings us in not only to Christ, but also to each other, that we're part of something bigger, one new humanity that God is forming from all nations and all tribes and all tongues. So um, if you're not a believer, we just ask you to stay seated. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to chat with you about that after the service. Um, if you are a believer in Christ, uh, we have two servers up in the front. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. If you have any kind of allergies, we have some gluten-free, nut-free bread in the middle. You can take that as well. And before we, we take the supper, I just want to just encourage you with this. Is Maybe before we take the supper, it's just in your own spirit, your own heart. It's just maybe come before God and just ask him to search your heart, search your, your life. Is there anything that, that would cause you know, division or, or, or separation from each other in this, this room? Are there any relationships that need to be reconciled in this, this room? For whatever reason those m- might be. Is our unity around Christ or is it around something else? So just lay that before Uh, the Lord as we we pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus, the peacemaker. And thank you for the spirit that comes and dwells and lives in us. That we now are your temples. That we're called to point others to the excellencies of Christ, to the, the mercies of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the realities of Christ. That you called us to be priests in the world to help be reconcilers of a man to God and man to each other. And I believe God, only the gospel can do that. It's going to take more than human ingenuity and willpower. We need a supernatural working of your spirit for that to happen. I believe that with every fiber of my bones. 
because I see what's going on here and it's just a miracle. And I couldn't orchestrate this on my own strength. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the church, even with all its faults and, and warts, that you're not done with us. We have lots of blemishes. We have lots of places we need to grow. But thank you that you're not done with us. Thank you that you're gracious to us. The same grace that's been extended to us in Christ Jesus, may we extend that same grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ, here and elsewhere. So help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.